any astronaut says they're they, they're not afraid of when they get on that rocket of either incredibly naive or lying through their teeth. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. Hey, it's Mikey from the Goonies. Well, the moral of the story is take your 10-year-old son to Hooters. Wait, an actor's in charge of my money? A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have original space shuttle class astronaut Mike Mullane as he tells the story about the Challenger tragedy, its impact on the country, and the future of space travel as we know it. The big thing that we're talking about today is, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up here on the 32, uh, or we've just had the 32-year anniversary of uh, the, the Challenger explosion, which is one of those things where everyone can say where you were at that time. And uh, it's something that's it's burned into, you know, so many people's consciousness. And, and you know, you were one of the people that were obviously uh, around that being part of the shuttle program. And uh, so we really, really, really want to delve into that today. So how long, um, just in brief, could you give us sort of a brief background of, of, of how long you'd been in that program and, and um, how well you knew some of the people that were, were on, on board? I was selected as an astronaut in the first group of space shuttle astronauts in 1978. Uh, and of that, in the Challenger disaster, uh, four of the seven astronauts killed on Challenger were from that from my astronaut class, that 78 class, including Judy Resnick. Her and I flew together 18 months earlier, 18 months before Challenger, on our rookie mission aboard the first flight of the orbiter Discovery. So obviously, Challenger hit my class of astronauts hit, hit all of NASA severely. There was no question it hit the nation severely. Uh, I certainly had a very personal uh, pain knowing these people and particularly having flown with Judy Resnick. In fact, I had called her a day or two before to wish her good luck and told her I'd see her back in Houston. And of course, that never occurred. So it was, it was terrible. It was a terrible day. Where were you that morning? Actually, I did not watch the the launch live. Uh, my my, I was in Los Alamos Laboratories uh, in New Mexico, training for a payload for my second shuttle mission, which was to be the first mission. Uh, it was going to be a Department of Defense mission uh, out of uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. So, myself and the rest of that crew, uh, we were all in the laboratory area training on this payload, and of course, they didn't have any TVs and these secret operations and such. Uh, it was only, I think, probably 10 or 15 minutes after the tragedy that, that we learned of it. Somebody came in and who had heard it on the radio or whatever and came in and told us about it. What was the reaction in the room? Well, they took us to a place that did have a TV and, and we were able to watch. And as soon as, I mean, we, obviously it was very, very painful, you know, just gut-wrenching. Uh, seeing it, of course, re-energize that pain immediately. Uh, we knew immediately at the time the press was still speculating that the crew might have somehow survived, but as soon as we saw the, the blossom of the uh, explosion, we knew absolutely the crew had perished and that there was no hope of survival. So uh, you know, I remember uh, one, of the, one of the crew members there with me started crying. I, I don't recall whether I actually cried visible tears, but I certainly... Uh, I certainly was choked up and and ripped up by the whole by the whole uh, vision of the of those people dying like that. What was uh, kind of your 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 reaction to it in the days following that? Was it uh, uh, how do you improve? Was it 
how do you deal with it from a personal standpoint? What what was sort of uh, the, the next steps uh, for you and, and those around you in the program? Well, the first step was rallying around the families. Uh, we we uh, went to offer our condolences to the families. Uh, the team, obviously the class, uh, wanted to do that immediately. Uh, we, as far as uh, beyond that, uh, we obviously were focused on what caused the problem, understanding it, coming up with a fix, uh, when we might uh, resume flights. That wasn't a given at the time. In my mind, I thought, you know, this might be the end of the program. Uh, clearly it wasn't. But uh, those uh, understand, we actually knew the cause relatively quickly, and that was the failure of the O-ring on, on one of the solid rocket boosters. So that, that came about fairly quickly because uh, they had some video that they were able to look at after it was processed. It wasn't live. Nobody had any clue the O-rings had failed live. But uh, you know, they have these cameras on the launch pad that are filming from many different angles, these launches. And then after the mission, they develop that film and go back and look at it. And um, they saw the puff of smoke, and they knew right away within a couple, couple days they, they knew exactly what had caused the failure. This launch was viewed by so many people, um, you know, with uh, with Chris McAuliffe uh, being part of that, uh, you know, the teacher who, you know, first teacher in space. So it was on in just about every classroom around the country. I, I was reading that it's uh, within an hour, 85% of America knew about it, which at the time, you know, pre-internet um, was was a pretty amazing fact. Um, what what was your your reaction or what did you feel like the country's reaction was to it? Well, I thought the country's reaction was exactly uh, what NASA's reaction was and the, and the astronauts' reaction was, and that was uh, disbelief and and severe pain. Uh, that that it wasn't just Krista McCullough. I uh, that certainly had been in the news constantly, but you know, people the grief was for the entire crew and the surprise, obviously the shock of seeing it. It wasn't something that. NASA had declared the space shuttle operational. There was a sense that uh, it was nothing more than a high-flying 747 with, uh, you know, insignificant uh, risk associated with it. And the fact that Krista McAuliffe was on there, a passenger, a non-essential crew member flying for basically public relations purposes, the fact she was on there was a message, really, that that NASA felt the the rocket was, in fact, uh, nothing more than a high-flying aircraft uh, with uh, very little risk. And so that, I think, had lulled people into uh, believing that there was no big deal about shuttle launches. So I think that shock, that shock of realizing that it, it wasn't this high-flying 747, but did have some some danger associated with it, uh, that's I think, was what hit the American public severely, just the, the shock of it. Now, now beyond the O-ring, I know you, you've written about this uh, uh, and, and talked about, of course, beyond the O-ring, what was sort of the cause of the explosion more from maybe a cultural standpoint within the organization or, or from how the lead-up was to the launch? The root cause, in my opinion, and it's supported, I think, in the historical documents that surround the four-year march to Challenger, it was a pressure-driven uh, disaster that that. that the whole goal on the shuttle was to rapidly expand the shuttle flight rate to 24 missions a year, about a mission every two weeks, uh, with the idea that it, NASA would be able to launch not only their own 
missions, but also the Department of Defense missions and uh, capture some of the communication satellite market and be making money for the American taxpayer by selling the, the launch services to these uh, commercial uh, satellite makers. And uh, it all hinged, though, on being able to fly and fly often. So there was this significant pressure on the team to achieve this, rapidly achieve this uh, 24 missions year flight rate, uh, which turned out to be absolutely unattainable with the resources that are available. But the, uh, the, commission, the commissions that investigated uh, said that it was the intense pressure to achieve a launch rate of about a mission every two weeks in the program uh, that contributed to uh, shortcutting uh, some of the standards for safe launch practices and resulted in the disaster. And what was your feeling? So, uh, and uh, how many flights had you done, uh, uh, space shuttle flights had you done prior to that? And then how did you feel about going after? Okay, I flew one mission before, my rookie mission that I mentioned with Judy Resnick and another uh, other group. Uh, that was uh, in 1984, about 18 months before Challenger. Uh, I was training for my second mission, as I said, when Challenger occurred. Now, uh, that Vandenberg flight got canceled. I won't go into the reasons for that. They were both technical and economic. Uh, why NASA decided that point, they were not going to launch from both coasts. They weren't going to conduct Kennedy Space Operations and California Operations. They were just going to uh, do the Kennedy Operations. And so there's a whole realignment of missions. But I ended up on my second mission. It was the second mission after Challenger. And that flew uh, two and a half years after the disaster. And then I flew a, a final mission in 1990 that was uh, the 34th shuttle mission. So in, in sequence, and to keep it in perspective, there were 135 total shuttle missions in its, in its life. I flew on the 12th, the 27th, and the 34th mission. So uh, there was 101 missions after my last mission. So I was flying in the very early shuttle program. But to answer your question, the Challenger disaster uh, – did not change my fear factor of, of boarding the rocket. And any astronaut says they're, they, they're not afraid of when they get on that rocket. It's either incredibly naive or lying through their teeth. Um, and I think the military people, frankly, because we had been around high-performance aircraft for so long in our young careers and had seen crashes and had buried friends who died very young in these various uh, aircraft tragedies, that we all had a sense that this was a very experimental machine. It, it had inherent dangers associated with being such a high-performance vehicle. Uh, the team had worked to try to reduce those uh, risks, uh, and they're very good at doing that. But uh, still, we felt when NASA was declaring the space shuttle operational, I don't believe any military astronaut believe that. We still felt that this was had some significant risks associated with it. So I think astronauts, the military astronauts, were less less shocked by by Challenger. Uh, I think it was a, a situation where we had seen it happen before and we expected it. I think probably in the lifetime of the shuttle, I think all of us felt we would probably lose one. Um, how it happened shocked us. The fact that it was a, basically a no-one problem that got uh, continually normalized into people accepting it. That shocked us. But the, the reality that uh, this incredibly complex vehicle could fail did not. And so 
the, my fear factor for my first mission was, or my second and third mission was exactly the same as my first is my first mission. Uh, actually, I guess I should say is my second mission, which was the second mission after Challenger. That probably was <laughs> the second safest shuttle ever to launch. The safest shuttle ever launched was the first one after Challenger. So, if anything, I felt maybe in the back of my mind the risks of that of my second mission were, were less than than before, but. Basically, no. My my fear factor did not change. Uh, climbing aboard that rocket, I always felt that there was a direct threat to uh, to my life being aboard those things. But that said, you couldn't have pried me out of that cockpit. I was I was living the dream. I wanted to fly. I wanted to fly as much as possible, and there was no amount of fear associated with those uh, rides into space that would have deterred me from getting in that cockpit. I had to go. It was like my DNA. And, and I think I speak for a lot of astronauts there. It's not a job for us. It's a dream. And we want, we want to satisfy that dream of space flight so we, we can easily, not easily, but we can swallow back that fear when we climb aboard those things because we know a lifetime dream of flight into space is at hand. What did you feel about I, I know you said there were 101 missions after your final mission. W- what were your feelings when the program ended? Well, I, th- I thought the decision... We got to go back a little in history. The decision to end the program was actually made after the Columbia disaster. Uh, that was the one that burned up over Texas in uh, what was that 2003, I believe. And at that point, people realized that the vehicle did not have a credible escape system. It never had a credible escape system as we had in the past with uh, with these power rockets, uh, expendable rockets. They had a very good escape system in the form of a tractor rocket that would pull the capsule away from failing boosters and the parachute and the crew stood an excellent chance of, of, um, of surviving a challenger like disaster in the atmosphere. Uh, the shuttle did never had that capability. I think at that point people realized, Hey, if we keep flying this thing, we're going to lose another one. Uh, and we better uh, ground it as quick, as soon as possible. But as soon as possible, it wasn't immediate because NASA said, we'll fly out the obligations to build the International Space Station in, in the missions that followed Columbia. And uh, they did that. And then they said, okay, at that point, after those missions had been completed for building the International Space Station, we will ground the shuttle. And then at that point, the decision was made to privatize the lower Earth orbit access. And that's what we saw yesterday on the on the news with the tremendous success of SpaceX on their, on their uh, Falcon heavy, heavy vehicle launch. That was incredible. And that was born, you know, in a way out of uh, the shuttle. Pro- well, not in a way, it was absolutely born out of the, out of the shuttle program to privatize uh, the, the access uh, to space and low earth orbit. And so we're seeing, seeing that now with uh, SpaceX and their, their success. You actually beat me to my next question. I was going to get your thoughts on that and, and kind of where you see the, uh, the public or private uh, uh, going in terms of space travel. Uh, you know, what's your thoughts on that and any advice you would have for it as well? Let me explain a little bit more on that decision to privatize space. Uh, in the past, all these rockets you saw, the space shuttle, the Saturn Vs, the Atlases, the Titans, and you know, all these other rockets that took astronauts into space, we own those as taxpayers. That was it. We owned them. We owned the infrastructure. We paid for it. Uh, NASA saw that, hey, that's a bad model for the, uh, for the taxpayer. 
And so at that point, after the shuttle was grounded, they said, we'll give taxpayer seed money to startup companies to develop their own rockets to fly into low Earth orbit. And we will lease their services and we want to use it for our own astronauts or resupplying the, the space station. Uh, but in the meantime, these private companies can sell their launch services to anybody they want. They can sell it to the launch uh, co commercial communication satellite market. They can do space tourism. They can do whatever they want. Uh, we're just going to lease their service when we want it. And so that, and we won't own the infrastructure. We won't own the, the taxpayer, won't own the infrastructure. We won't own the rockets. And clearly that is a much better model if you're a taxpayer. Uh, and it has, reaped enormous success with uh, with what you saw there with, with SpaceX. SpaceX and NASA missed this. If they had been under contract, through a government contract, to get where SpaceX, SpaceX is right now, it would have cost at least $4 billion, they said, for the, uh, for the American taxpayer and taken much, much longer than what the private, uh, well, what SpaceX has been able to pull off. So the model is working very, very well. Uh, there are some concerns that uh, SpaceX, uh, man rating their capability, uh, being able to put a human on top of that rocket isn't the same as putting a Tesla car on it uh, when it comes to the safeguards. So uh, they're in a long-term, multi-year process. NASA's working with uh, SpaceX and the other private companies who are competing to launch NASA's astronauts to man rate their rockets and their capsules and make sure they're absolutely as safe as uh, humanly possible. So that process is ongoing. But here in the next two years or so, we'll see uh, astronauts uh, flying, hopefully flying a Falcon rocket uh, up to the, up to space, uh, to the space station. But the, that's the, the future, though, is that we've privatized lower Earth orbit. NASA will lease it when they need it. In the meantime, to get out of Earth, Earth or, and there's a there's obviously clearly a capitalistic uh, motive for these private companies because now they have a product they can sell. To, you know, SpaceX is selling it to Department of Defense, the foreign satellite markets. Uh, so they got a they've got a business model and it's making money for them. There's no right now. There isn't a lot of money to be made going to Mars or asteroids, asteroids or back to the moon uh, commercially. So NASA is developing their own supersized Saturn V class rocket called the SLS, Space Launch System. Not very imaginative, I think. They need to come up with a better name. But uh, anyway, th that should be flying in another you know, 10, 10 or 12 years or so, hopefully. But that will be able to take astronauts uh, back to the moon and go to Mars. And if, if Elon Musk doesn't beat us there, but... Uh, that's the, that's the old model, though. That's where we're building that. We're buying it, the taxpayers, the infrastructure, you know, that type of stuff. So uh, two directions. Lower Earth orbit's been privatized. Uh, NASA's working now on, on the distant reach to Mars and beyond with this new rocket and capsule. Initially, when NASA said they were privatizing uh, lower Earth orbit, myself and probably 99% of NASA and certainly probably all of the astronauts thought it was crazy, it, you know, that we couldn't envision that that was going to work. Uh, we were so used to the old model. And uh, I wrote today on my blog or on my uh, LinkedIn or Facebook, whatever, that uh, I, I need to have a, a large order of crow put in front of me to eat because I was one of the, I was one of the naysayers. I didn't, I couldn't envision this would work. And I'll tell you, 
Elon Musk and SpaceX are absolutely incredible. He is a visionary of the first magnitude, and I've seen people now thinking that we might get to Mars in, in their lifetime. I still am skeptical of I'm 72, so uh, that, 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 that uh, if we could do it, it would be wonderful that I could live to see it, but uh, I think it, there's a chance that my offspring and grandkids would be able to see it, which is uh, really pretty pretty great. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking Podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of D. & Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Jout, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast.